Um, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John 6. In this account, they are gathered outside. Um, they probably had a better view of Lake Tiberias, but they are gathered outside and they came to Jesus. And so we'll be continuing in our study in the book of John. We'll be reading verses 1 through 29. This is God's holy inspired word for us today. Let's read it together. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they'd eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and, and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that the disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, 
that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is God's holy inspired word. Let's pray. Father, would you enable us to receive from you and from your son? Jesus, would you enable us to receive all that you have for us? Would you enable us to be satisfied in you, to be secure in you alone? God, I pray that you would continue to bless this time. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, when I was in high school, there was at the time a new show that came out on the radio. It was called Adventures in Odyssey. Um, you might have heard of that if um, you are 50 and below. Um, if not, maybe your grandkids have listened to it. But the target audience was, was kids in, in elementary and middle school. But I secretly listened to it as a high school student. Um, I, I, I snuck and listened to it. Now, it wasn't cool, but I really enjoyed it. And the reason why I enjoyed it is because it, was, it, it, it helped you use your imagination to put you into the places of the Bible. They had this thing called the Imagination Station where you would, the, the, the characters would enter into and it would take them into the land of the Bible and they would, they would hear the sounds, they would see the sights, they would smell the smells, and they would experience the Bible in a fresh and real way. And I, I think that's actually how we're intended to read the Bible and read narratives like this. We're meant to put ourselves in that place, in that setting, in that time. And I still actually secretly enjoy listening to Adventures in Odyssey at times. Although it was 19 years ago when we first started that with our own kids. Um, we have young kids still in the home. And so um, sometimes when they're listening to it, I'll just kind of hang around. You know, dad's got stuff to do in the kitchen or wherever they might be. The, the setting is kind of what draws us in. And the setting in this account, it's important. Whenever, whenever John tells a story, a, a narrative of, of what happened, he, he often gives details. Now, John, he is... He's very minimal in the details that he gives. Unlike some of the other gospel writers, they give a lot of the details around their narratives. But John, what the details he gives, they're extremely important. They're for a reason. You know, I can imagine, if you will, Jesus and disciples, they've been ministering. All these crowds have been following him. They've been looking after him. They've been coming to him to be healed. And so countless numbers of people they're ministering to, praying over, being with, um, coming and attending to. And so Jesus' disciples, they're tired. They go up, we know from the other Gospels, they're tired of in, in ministry. And, and by the way, being a Christian, being a disciple is tiring at times. And so they go away up into this, this hillside that surrounds this, this Lake Tiberias or the Lake of Galilee, Sea of Galilee. It's a sea about, about eight miles across, about 13 miles long. And um, they, they're there and they're up on this hillside, this, this tall hill, this mount on the top, and they've gone up there to kind of be by themselves, and yet when Jesus goes and he looks out, he sees this crowd coming. And, and, and John, he, he tells us as well something else about the setting. It's not just that they're there to rest and to relax. They're up on this mountaintop, this beautiful vista of the lake. But he says that it was the time of the Passover as well. And it's important because John mentions this, this Passover celebration because Passover was, was a celebration of how, how the angel of the Lord, he had passed over the people of Israel when, when he had promised to kill all the firstborn in Egypt. He said, I'll pass over your homes, though, if you slaughter a lamb. And if you take the blood and you put it over your doorposts on the sides, and if, you, and if you eat of the lamb and eat everything, consume it all, feast on the lamb, put the blood over your doorposts. And if you obey me, if you put your trust, and your trust is seen in, in how you handle the lamb, if you're if your trust is seen in that, then the angel of the Lord will pass over you and you will not die. 
And so they celebrated that, and that, that whole Passover feast it was also linked with the celebration of how God delivered them out of Israel. He, he satisfied them, beginning with satisfying them with a full meal and the lamb. And then he satisfied them, he brought them out, and then he kept them safe, he kept them secure. He, he brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and then when they were stuck between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army, God used Moses lifting a staff to, to part the Red Sea, to, to bring them deliverance. And then he, he brought them into the wilderness and he provided for them because God is the God who satisfies. God is the God who keeps his people secure. He is the one who provides and protects. And I think it's important John is giving us a little, a little bit of a heads up on what he's going to be talking about, why he is showing us this account the Passover, the Feast of the Jews was a hand, it's relative to the story. Jesus lifts up his eyes, he sees a large crowd is coming to him. And I think John wants us to see something. John wants us to see in this passage that, that Jesus is ultimately the king, that Jesus is the son of God, that, that Jesus is the one who is the true fulfillment of, of all the Old Testament passages, all the that the Passover looked forward to, that Jesus is the one who fulfills, that he is the one who satisfies. He is the one who keeps secure those who follow him. That's what we'll see in the first 15 verses, that Jesus the king, he satisfies. In this account, they, uh, this crowd, they come up the hill, and Jesus knows that they're hungry. Maybe he's been teaching for a while before this. We're not exactly sure but they, they had seen the signs that he did, and they were following after him. John doesn't mention all the details of the signs, but we know from the other Gospels that, that he healed the sick, that he made the lame to walk, that he healed the lepers, that he made the blind eyes to be open, he made the deaf to hear, he healed all kinds of people. And yet John says something. He says they came to him because of the signs that he was doing on the sick. The signs were meant to signify something. The signs were meant to point to the reality of, of who Jesus is, that Jesus truly is the king. He is the king who satisfies. He is the king who keeps safe. And yet they were following him because of what they could get from him, what he might do for them. They were following him because they wanted Jesus to do things in this life. They wanted him as an earthly king, and that's not what he was here to do, not fully. They'd seen the signs that the king himself had come, and instead they'd missed the signs. They weren't really looking for the kind of king that Jesus was. They were looking for an earthly ruler, merely an earthly messiah, an earthly king, who'd restore the people to their autonomy as God's people, who would, who would restore an earthly kingdom. And that's, that's not very different today. Sometimes people come to Jesus because they think that Jesus will make your life easy. If you are a Christian, and if you've been a Christian for a while, you'll know that that's actually not the case. Sometimes he makes your life more difficult. They, people come to him because they think that, well, Jesus, he'll, he'll solve my financial problems if I believe enough in him. Or that if I come to Jesus, that, that I'll be physically healed. And yet, although Jesus is able and does those things, that's not primarily what he comes to do. He, came, he comes to satisfy us at the deepest level. He comes to fill our hunger at a far deeper level than any of those surface things. And all of his signs, they pointed to that. His sign in, in John of, of turning the, the water into wine, but it was really a sign that, that he satisfies 
all that they needed to be pure before God. He replaces the waters of purification and he satisfies those requirements of being pure before God. So Jesus satisfies our need to be pure. His cleansing of the temple pointed to the offering of himself as his perfect sacrifice that he satisfies the requirements to draw, of a sacrifice to draw near to God that once and for all he will satisfy the shedding of blood with himself for us and for our sake and he'll satisfy our need to come into God's presence. He satisfied the longing of the Samaritan woman's heart when he healed the official's son. He showed that He's the one who satisfies our longings and ultimately our deep need for mercy when it's completely undeserved. He satisfies our need for mercy. That's what all these signs were meant to point to. And so John continues this theme of, of pointing to Jesus as the satisfaction, and it kind of culminates with this, this demonstration of Jesus as the one who provides food. He lifts up his eyes down to verse 5. Look down your Bibles. He sees that a large crowd's coming towards him, and he asks Philip a question. And I can almost imagine that Jesus has got a smirk on his face. He knows what he's going to do. John tells us he knows what he's going to do. He's just asking Philip to test him. And so maybe they're sitting there, and Jesus kind of leans over. He's like, hey, Philip, look up. Philip looks up. He's like, hey, do you see all those crowds? Hey, Philip, you're, you're from the area. Where are we going to buy bread so that all these people can eat? Philip probably had a panicked moment for a second. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's a lot of pressure, Jesus. Philip thinks for a moment. He fails his test. You see, Jesus has been doing all these signs with Philip present, and yet Philip has failed to see that Jesus is the one who provides for people. Jesus is the one who can meet every need. Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the son of God. And, and so Philip, he, he immediately responds like a lot of us would with practical things when, we, when we're when we're pushed, when we have a need, when, when we see that something looks impossible to us, when something really is impossible to us, we can often try to get self-sufficient and say, hey, how do we solve this problem? That's at least my temptation. When I'm, when I'm faced with difficulty of, and things that are too hard for me, the things that are bigger than me, and by the way, in the Christian walk, you will be given things that are too big for you, that are too hard for you. They're not too hard for Jesus. You're meant to turn to him. But Philip, he fails here, and he answers Jesus, and he goes, Jesus, man, if we got 200 denarii, if we have 200 days wages, is what a denarii was, if we have eight months worth of salary, there's no way we can even give enough to all of them just have a little taste. Philip's looking to the material. He's looking to what he can do, what they can do. He's forgetting what King Jesus can do. A better answer might have been something like, you know, Jesus, I have no idea where I'm going to get that much bread. There's just no way. That's not possible, Jesus. It's not possible logistically, financially. But God, if you're asking, I know you've got something in mind. If you want to feed these people, I know you can do it. I know that you take care of needs. In fact, you'll supply all of our needs according to your riches because you're the king. When we're faced with insurmountable problems in our life, our first place to turn is, should not be to ourselves as believers because we have King Jesus with us. But where do we turn? Where do you turn? Where are you tempted to turn when, when you're faced with the impossible? When you're faced with something that's really too big for you. It's too much. It's a problem you can't solve. Philip wanted him to see that, that he is the king. He's the king who satisfies our every need. 
one of his disciples, I can imagine, Andrew, there's a little competition. By the way, there was some competition between the disciples. We see that in the Gospels. I can just imagine, you know, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he's like, Philip failed, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure it out. And so they're all kind of talking, and, and, and Andrew's like asking around, hey, you got any food? You got any food? Let's figure this out. I'm, all right, maybe like we can't buy anything, but maybe people brought some food to share. But he comes up pretty empty-handed because all he comes up with is this one little kid, and he's got five little barley loaves. Those were these little flat loaves that the poor would make. They weren't rich man's food. They were probably about an inch thick. They're about the size of a, of a uh, olive garden breadstick, but flat. So, so he's got five of these. He's got two of these little dried fish just for flavoring, basically. He says, well, well Jesus, I'm, I'm, there's a boy, and he's got, he's got five barley loaves, two fish, but what are they for so many? Philip, I mean, Andrew fails the test as well. Had he stopped with the, hey, there's this boy, and he's got something. Jesus, you can do something with nothing. That would have been good. And he said, Jesus, I don't see, I don't see provision, but Jesus, I, I trust that you're able to do that. That would have been good. But he says instead, but what are they for so many? Sometimes that's our response as well. God, God, what? I don't have the ability to, to be your disciple to so many. I don't have the ability to minister to so many. I don't have the ability to, to do what you're asking me to do. What is, what is what you've given me for so many? Yet Jesus wants us to look to him, the king, to see what kind of king he really is and what he can really do. Now the disciples, they probably were perplexed by Jesus' response, but by this time they learned to keep their mouths closed. Because Jesus, he didn't answer either one of those guys. When, when Philip says, hey, we only, you know, 200 denarii, I won't even give him a taste. And Andrew says, well, I've, I just got this kid here. And what's that? Jesus is like, okay, have them all sit down. They must have been like, all right, Jesus. Not sure what you're going to do. And then it, John tells us another detail. He says, now there was much grass in the place, the top of this, this mount overlooking the, the lake. And he says, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And, and from the other Gospels, we know that that was 5,000 men alone, not counting women and children. We don't know the exact total number, but in that day, they counted the men only. There's some where 1,000, around 10,000 people or so. And the point is, this was an impossibly large crowd. The number's important only to show us that this is a crowd far too big for 12 guys in in first century Israel to feed on the fly. You know, they don't have any Panera bread they can go to. They don't have any fast food places. This is impossible. But Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Creator. He's the one who was in the beginning with God. He's the one that, who everything was made through him. Without him, nothing in the universe was made. So then Jesus, he takes these loaves in, in verse 11, and when he had given thanks, I'd love to have, have been there and heard what he said. Maybe saying, thank you, Father, that I don't, I don't need anything, but I'm going to use these things to create something from nothing to feed and care for people because, God, you care for people. You satisfy. So he, he gave thanks and he distributes them, and something happened as he distributed them. We don't know exactly when this miracle transpired, but, but as he distributes them in some way, all of a sudden, we know if it's, as he's giving them out, they just keep multiplying, or he puts them in baskets and they multiply. We don't know, but and it says so also the fish. And and then it, I love the the way that John puts this. He says, as much as they wanted, because Jesus gives as much as is wanted. He satisfies. 
He fills us to completion. He, he, he completely satisfies. He completely fills and gives as much as we need. It says everybody had eaten, looking at verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, they had everything they wanted, and they had their, their entire fill. He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, and nothing may be lost. And so they gathered up 12 baskets full. And, and some would say, well, that 12, it represents the, the 12 tribes of Israel and, and the fullness of his provision. And I think that probably is accurate. We don't know for sure. But 12 often represents a fullness and a completion and, and how Jesus fully provided. He fully satisfied, and he didn't just satisfy until they were filled. He satisfied until there was overflowing provision. And like all the miracles that Jesus did, the physical was actually meant to point to a deeper spiritual reality. The spiritual reality was meant to point to, and that we see him explaining, is that, that he is the one who satisfies us. He is the one who fills us to overflowing. He is the one who gives us more than we need. What he did shouldn't have been missed. There was no human solution. This was not a sleight of hand. This wasn't a magic trick. There was no way they could have done this. With 5,000 men watching and his disciples standing there, there's no way this, you know, they had some secret cash in a cave or something. They handed it. That's, that's not happening here. Jesus is creating something from nothing. Only God creates food for his people. He fed his people by creating food for them at just the right time when they needed it, and he created an abundance for them. He alone satisfies. He's able to create an abundance of what we need. When the people saw the sign, they responded. Look at verse 14. They said, this is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. They believed. They knew that, wait a minute, this is the greater one because Moses never did that. You know, Moses prayed, and Moses told him what God would do, that God would be the one to give them manna in the wilderness. You see, the, the Passover is on their minds, right? The setting is the Passover. And they know that Moses prophesied a greater prophet than him who would come, that they had to listen to. And so they said, this is indeed the prophet who's going to come into the world because it's greater than anything Moses did because this person, this man, he's providing in a way that only God does. But here's the problem. They interpreted his sign wrong. They interpreted the sign as showing that, that Jesus was coming to establish an earthly kingdom, that he was coming to, to, to restore their promised land here on earth right then and there. They had, they had this, these nationalistic notions on their minds about how Jesus was maybe going to come and he was going to conquer the Romans. And you know maybe they pictured you know, Jesus' face on the coin instead of Caesar's. That he was going to come and, and he was, if you could do this, then surely he could conquer Caesar and throw the Romans out. And Jesus knew their intentions. He knew what they were thinking. He knew, it says, that they wanted to come, I'm astounded by this, and take him by force. That they were, they were feeling this sense of national pride. This, the Passover was near. It was, it, was, it was more nationalistic than what we think it was either the Juneteenth, the 4th of July, this, this freedom, this, this desire for freedom. And so they were going to come, and they were going to make him king. But they wanted to come and make him an earthly king because they didn't know what kind of king he really was. They didn't know that he already is the king of kings, that he already is the one who satisfies, and that, that he wants to satisfy him on a far deeper level, and he didn't want them to stop at the material provision alone. 
He didn't want them to be confused and think that he came to bring the, the Jewish nation back. He came to establish one nation. And it's not the, the Jewish nation. It's not the American nation. One nation under him. One nation under his rule and his reign. He came so that our hope might be in him and, and no nationalistic notions. He didn't want them looking to him as an earthly ruler. Just like he doesn't want us looking to any earthly ruler. He doesn't want us looking to any earthly king. He doesn't want us looking for hope to an earthly, in an earthly solution. Jesus doesn't want us stopping and saying, well, okay, let's, let's look to the earthly things that he does for us and what he can do. As Americans, I think we're tempted often to put our hope in our leaders. And this, this really is correction of that. Jesus wants nothing to do with that. Our hope's in Jesus. Now, does Jesus work in and through people? Absolutely, but, but our hope is in Christ. Not, as in, not establishing an earthly kingdom, not in giving us an earthly utopia, not in, not, in, not in doing the things we want him to do for us, but him satisfying the deepest needs that we have, and he does satisfy. But Jesus didn't come to be an earthly king alone. His kingdom is not of this world, he says, and so he withdrew and he went by himself. He came to satisfy the deepest longings of our heart to know God. He came to satisfy us at the deepest level with himself, and there's nothing more satisfying, fulfilling in this life than him alone. And he doesn't want us to be satisfied with any earthly kingdom. He's the king. He satisfies all those who follow him. And then I often wonder, what, what's the point of grouping this story, these stories together? Why does John do this? Why doesn't John just stop with verse 15 and then continue on in verse 24 when they find him again? Because they kind of continue on this discussion about bread, this crowd that he's ministered to. But yet, but John tells us of what happened in the middle. And I think he does it for a reason, because he wants us to see what kind of king Jesus is. He's not just the king who satisfies. He's also the king who keeps secure. He's the king who, who keeps his people secure. He secures those who follow him. Verse 16 tells us this account, the disciples that go down to the sea. We know from other gospel accounts that, that Jesus sent them away. And they must have been wondering, well, all right. Jesus is like, I'm going to meet you over there, but I want you to go ahead. And they're like, okay, I don't know how you're getting there, but we know better to not ask questions. And so they go, they get in the boat, they, they start rowing. These were, a lot of these men were fishermen. They were, they were familiar with the lake, the Sea of Galilee. They were rowing across it. They'd gotten about three or four miles across. I can, I can picture the scene now because they had, they had been there. They were already tired. They've distributed all this food. Jesus has taught them, we know from the other Gospels, they're exhausted. Jesus is like, hey, I want you to go ahead. And they're like, it's almost dark. Okay, we'll do it. They're in the dark. I don't know if you've ever been out on a lake or the ocean in the dark, but it can be disconcerting. And so they're paddling, and then all of a sudden a storm kicks up, and it says the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. You see the Sea of Galilee, it's, it's 700 feet below sea level. And so the Mediterranean, the winds would blow from the Mediterranean over through the, through the ravines and through the valleys, and they would come down into this ravine, into this, this, this gorge where this cauldron, where the Sea of Galilee was, and they'd, they'd kind of plow into the cliffs, and it would create this, this swirling cauldron of a storm. And it made, made travel at, at points tumultuous, but these fishermen, they're going across. They've gone about three or four miles, and 
If you've ever rowed a boat for three or four miles, you're probably even more tired now. And they're, they're probably straining against the oars. And, and the waves are coming up and the wind is blowing and they're wet and they're probably miserable and scared. And then things get scarier. This is like a scene out of a horror movie for the disciples, at least for a moment. Because if I was straining against the oars, just trying to make an inch with a paddle, and then I look up and I see this figure walking on the water, that's not normal. All right? If you've ever been out in a storm on a lake or in the ocean and you saw somebody walking across the water, you'd be terrified. And so they were. They look over, they see Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and says, and they were frightened. <laughs> John, thanks. That's, thanks for the understatement there. We know this is not some trick. Jesus walking on boards or shallow water. He was three or four miles out. It's about eight miles across, and they were scared. But this frightening scene, Jesus speaks peace to them. He calms their fears. Now, I... I I, I love the, the ESV version, but in this instance, I don't care for the way they translated when Jesus, what Jesus said to them. And actually, most of the translations don't care for it because he says, it is I. They're grappling there with the original language where, where Jesus uses two different words to say, I am, I am. And they're like, that doesn't, that doesn't flow very well in English. But what Jesus says here is, I am, I am. Don't be afraid. Because he wants them to see who he is. They want them to see that, that he is the king. He is the I am. He is the I am. I am, I am. The great I am. I'm, I'm the one to keep you secure. Don't be afraid. I'm the, I am here. In the middle of your storm, in the middle of the problems, I'm here to keep you secure. Don't be afraid. We can know that no matter what storm or problem we encounter, Jesus, the I am, is with us. We don't have reason to be afraid. We have reason to not be afraid. He's the one who can create something from nothing. I heard an illustration about how much energy that would have taken to create matter from nothing. And it's an astounding amount of energy. <laughs> they used an analogy of something like three trillion elephants would have been launched into space a mile. I'm like, well, I don't know where they got that, but to doing energy calculations and so they've seen the, the power of Jesus and all of these different signs and all of his miracles, all of his provisions, and now he comes and he's walking on water and he says, I am, I am, don't be afraid. Because they need to see that he's not the only the one who satisfies, but he's the one who keeps them secure. He keeps them safe. He's got power over the laws of physics and he's in control of nature. Uh, Job, in, in Job 9, 8 Job wrote that, that God is, is he who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Isn't it interesting that Job used that terminology? Job says that God alone is the one who tramples the waves of the sea. And what do we see Jesus doing? Jesus is trampling the waves of the sea. And what context do you do it? Oh, it's near Passover. What does Passover bring to mind? Whoa, how, how Moses, after they were brought out, he, he lifts his staff. God parts the sea. Oh, now Jesus, he walks on the sea. He has complete dominance over the sea. He doesn't need a party. He walks on the water to rescue his disciples, to keep them secure. He's able to deliver. He's able to keep safe. Jesus is demonstrating beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's the son of God. He's the creator of all. He is the king who satisfies and secures. 
John must have remembered what it felt like to be on the boat that night. He says, and then they were glad to take him into the boat. I bet. <laughs> and then something incredible happens. There are debates about what exactly does John mean. I think John means exactly what he says. I think there can be a temptation to rationalize when we see miracles in the Bible. And it says, they were glad to take him in the boat. And then immediately the boat was at land. They were going three or four miles. It was a more of a trip than that. I don't think John was saying that it just felt like time passed as soon as Jesus got there. It just felt like we immediately got. Jesus steps in and he made them secure. He brought them to the place they needed to go. He delivered them safely to the destination. I, I like how R.C. Sproul comments about this. He says, the story is not a parable. It's a historical narrative. However, it certainly illustrates what happens when Jesus comes into our lives. Life is a time of pulling against the oars, against resistance, trying to get somewhere. However, we're not getting anywhere. We're about to be engulfed. But as soon as Jesus gets in the boat, we're home free. That's what happens when Christ comes into the lives of his people. He doesn't take away all difficulties and make our lives beds of ease, but he gets us through the darkness. He gets us through the violence. He carries us through the storm. Especially in these times we're living in that, that seem dark, that seem violent, that are stormy. We need to look to him for our security, look to him for our satisfaction. And when we see him, we are carried through the storm. John doesn't spend any more time on that, but he goes back again. He ties these two stories together, these two accounts. And verse 22, we see, we see that this crowd, they've, they've looked around, and they know that the disciples left, and there was only one boat there. The disciples left in this boat. They didn't see Jesus leave, and they're like, but he's not here. And so they all bunch of them. They take those boats across to the place where they, they saw the disciples headed, and they get there. They go to Capernaum. They, they're looking for Jesus, and they find him. And when they find him in verse 25, it says, they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? They didn't know that, that he had gotten into the boat with the disciples. They didn't know that he had walked on water. But they knew that somehow he disappeared and somehow he was there. Now also notice, and John's drawing attention to this, I think, that they still are not calling him Master, Lord, King, Messiah. They wanted to make him king, but they were still thinking of him as a man, as an earthly king. They call him rabbi. And, and Jesus, he somewhat surprisingly, he corrects them in verse 26. He, he doesn't say, I came here, I walked on water, be impressed. He doesn't say that. He corrects them. He says, you know, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs and understood what they mean, but because you were filled with the loaves. So Jesus ties these things together and he says, truly, I said, you're seeking me not because you saw what I did and you understood that it means that I'm the king. You're not following me because I'm the Messiah. You're following me because you think I'm going to get you earthly things and that's the wrong reason to follow me. They wanted an earthly king to meet their earthly needs. They wanted an earthly savior, not the true savior, to save them from their sins and the wrath of God that they really needed to be saved from. So Jesus corrected them, and he tells them, and look in verse 27, he says, don't labor. You know, they, they worked hard to get there to find Jesus. They were laboring to find him. But they were laboring to find him for the wrong reasons. He says, don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, 
which the Son of Man will give to you. Now, now he has already referred to himself this way. They should know by now that he is the Son of Man. He is the one prophesied in Daniel. He is, he is the King of Kings. He says, for on him... God the Father has set his seal. They actually understood what he was talking about. They knew he was talking about himself because of how they respond in the latter part of this passage. But for now, they said, well, what do we have to do? So if we're not supposed to work to get full of food, then what kind of work are we supposed to do, Jesus? They still thought it was about working to get something. They were still working to get something. What do we have to do to be doing these works of God? So so if it's about works, Jesus, then what do we have to do? And Jesus is telling them, no, it's not about you doing works. There's something interesting happened in the way that Jesus put it. He tells them in verse 27, don't labor, don't you labor for food. But labor for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. You don't labor to get something on your own. You labor because... The Son of Man is going to give you something. On him the Father has set his seal. It's, it's not about your work. It's about the work of the Son of Man giving you eternal life. So they say, what do we have to do to be doing these works? Verse 29, Jesus answered him and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The only work that you can do, the only work that you can do to be satisfied the only work that you can do to be kept secure, the only work that you can do to, that will endure, that will give you food, that will carry you through to eternal life, that will sustain you faithfully to the end, the only work that you can do is, is believing, but not in yourself. Not like Disney says, if you believe, believing in him whom he has sent. The work that God requires is to believe in Jesus whom God has sent and it was the one who was standing before them. And they, later on, we're going to find out next week, later on, they rejected that. They got what he was saying. But they didn't want the kind of king he came to be. Because it, it meant something for them. It meant that they had to give up their, their, their hopes and their dreams about earthly satisfaction because they had to put their hope and their dreams in him who satisfies and keeps secure. You don't have to work to be satisfied. You don't have to work to be secure in him. You have, to, you have to work to believe in him who he sent. Believe in Jesus and be satisfied. Believe in Jesus and be kept secure. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us, that you feed us, that you satisfy our deepest hunger, that you satisfy our deepest longings, that you give us all that we need for life and godliness in you. God, help us let go of looking to earthly things for our satisfaction. Help us let go of looking to earthly people for satisfaction. Help us let go of looking to an earthly kingdom for satisfaction. Lord, help us look to you, Jesus, the King, and be filled in you. Help us be satisfied in you and you alone. God, may we not look to money or power or prestige or our work to keep us secure. But may we look to you, Jesus, to keep us safe and secure through the dark and violent night. Lord, enable us to believe in you. 
Give us faith. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.